0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Advocates say Colorado could become a safe haven for transgender youth and their parents as Texas begins investigating caregivers.
1: We are leaving behind our family, our friends, and our community.
0: Plus, we talk with the state's first chief educational equity officer in the Department of Higher Education about making sure learning empowers everyone. Later, the Colorado Environmental Film Festival highlights concerns about oil and gas development and climate change in the North Fork Valley.
1: When we first moved here in 73, we could get irrigation water all the way down to here. It would catch in the catch ditch. It would go on to the next farm. They could use it and so on. That hasn't happened for several years.
0: And using music to come to terms with disasters like the Marshall Fire.
1: A
2: bad place. Hi, I'm Grace Hanover, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. I had this wonderful old Volkswagen Jetta. When the transmission went out, I knew it wasn't worth investing the resources into fixing the car. And I wanted it to have a meaningful life afterward. So knowing that it would be doing good sort of out in the world, even if I couldn't use it, was part of my thinking in terms of donating it to CPR. It's super easy to donate your car at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Haffel. Advocates say Colorado could become a safe haven for transgender youth and their parents fleeing Texas. Officials there have started to investigate caregivers of transgender children. Governor Greg Abbott directed the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services to conduct the investigations, saying certain gender-affirming care for transgender adolescents is child abuse. That's brought huge pushback from LGBTQ advocates, as well as numerous Texas county and district attorneys who say they'll not prosecute parents of transgender kids under the new child abuse definition. To get more context, I'm joined now by Sable Schultz. She's the manager of transgender programming at the Center on Colfax, an LGBTQ community center in Denver. Sable, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The New York Times reported on Tuesday that one of the first people in Texas to be investigated is a woman who worked for the state. She has a 16-year-old transgender child. According to a lawsuit filed against Texas, the state uh, allegations are that her transgender daughter might have been provided with gender-affirming health care. Those investigations have caused fear in families of trans kids. At a rally yesterday in Texas, Marty Bayer of the Texas Freedom Network read a statement from a family leaving the state in fear. Listen to this.
1: I can't be here today to speak because my family is scared and worried that speaking publicly could lead to criminal investigation. That sounds outlandish, but it is the reality for many Texas families. We will be gone soon to a state with explicit protections for trans kids and adults. We are leaving behind our family, our friends, and our community. We are leaving behind the city where my husband and I have both been raised, and where we started our family. We are leaving behind careers. We are leaving the home we thought we would raise our children to adulthood in. Our family never imagined that we would move so far away, and certainly never imagined we would become political targets in our own state.
0: Sable, what's your take on this development? And do you think that Colorado could become a safe haven for those in Texas fearing they might be investigated?
1: I yes, I definitely think that Colorado is probably one of the states that folks who are concerned about their safety, the safety of their families uh, will come to. We've seen this. I've seen this uh, repeatedly in in the work that I've done at the Center on Colfax, where anytime we see sort of this legislative action or in this case, executive action to persecute transgender, trans and gender diverse people, uh, we see an inflow of folks coming from those states into Colorado. And while I really wanna emphasize, I really embrace everybody who comes to Colorado It's sad to think that they're coming to Colorado because they don't feel safe where they are rather than coming to Colorado because this is the space that resonates with them.
0: Yeah. What do you say to those who might be thinking about leaving Texas?
1: Uh, I think that, again, Colorado, Colorado is is a great state. Uh, There are many states that have support and protections for transgender, trans and gender diverse folk that we're here, that we're welcoming, that uh, it's a place where people can just kind of be themselves and really manifest them their authentic selves in the state.
0: The investigations in Texas are seeking medical records requests. And with the new definition released by Texas Governor Abbott, healthcare providers must report suspected child abuse with gender affirming care under the new definition. Have you been hearing from your counterparts in Texas about their concerns, especially with medical care professionals who have practices that include patients who may be transgender? Uh,
1: Most certainly. And I I want to emphasize that this sort of request uh, is concerning, right? Like these, these are federally protected records, right? These are uh, same with school records, right? These are federally protected records and for a, uh, a governor and a district attorney to step outside of the defined law to target one specific uh, group. It's definitely concerning for medical professionals who are providing what has been affirmed as being best practices and medically necessary care for transgender and gender diverse kids. And to be clear, Most of this medical care is simply about supporting them socially and delaying their puberty until such a point that they can make these decisions fully for themselves, right? We're not asking, uh, trans, trans kids and their caregivers, their guardians, uh, their protectors, they're, they're not pushing these kids through any sort of medical process other than saying, Hey, we're here to listen to you. We're here to support you with where you are at, and we're here to empower you to make the best decisions about your own body when you are able to do so. These sorts of these sorts of uh, targeted um, investigations, right are designed to uh, really disrupt the supportive dynamic that's been developing within our healthcare community about providing the best practices and medically necessary care that our kids need.
0: Now, to be clear, there is a strong likelihood that Governor Abbott's request for investigations will not stand up to judicial scrutiny. Uh, late yesterday, a Texas judge blocked the ongoing investigation of that woman we mentioned earlier and will decide next week if other investigations can move forward. Many are seeing this as a pure political ploy. I should note Abbott is up for re-election this year. However, more than 20 states Including Texas, have introduced legislation to ban gender-affirming treatment for teenagers. Um, Sable, should gender-affirming care, including transitional care, be discussed differently for teens and adolescents than for adults?
1: I think that any sort of sort of gender-affirming care, right? These are all medically necessary care. This has been this is care that needs to be. Uh, discussed through medical professionals and not put through a political arena like this, right? This This is the best practices as outlined by like the American Pediatrics Association and organizations throughout the world have been looking at best practices to support transgender and gender diverse kids. So Hmm. sort of treating this differently, right? Like what we need to be treating is looking at the science. What does the science say is the best care for these kids? And the science repeatedly says that supporting their gender identity, providing them with the, the medically necessary care that they need for their gender affirming care is best practice. And so to sort of like legislate around that is is really when we talk about like the government interfering with health care, right? Like, that's the government interfering with health care. So.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if you think the situation in Texas is having a ripple effect beyond state lines. Here's Emmett Schelling. He's a trans man from Texas speaking at the rally I mentioned earlier. And he had a, mention, a message for trans kids, not just in Texas, but around the country To trans kids, you are beautiful and you are resilient, and you are loved. It takes so much to be who
1: we are, unapologetically, openly,
0: and courageously. For you to recognize your truth and have your parents love and support you is a special thing. Parents, hang in there. We are here.
1: We are fighting, we are around the clock, and we are calling in reinforcements.
0: You can hear the anguish in his voice. How is the LGBT community here dealing with everything happening in Texas?
1: Right, We're, so a lot of us here, we are working on doing what we can to maintain our support group structures, right? Uh, do provide resource referrals for our community members, Uh, Speaking out and being a part of this conversation, which is really being a kid is hard enough, right? We Mm -hmm. don't need these politicians making it even harder for transgender and gender diverse kids. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing in Colorado has been foundational work, right? Laying the protections for transgender and gender diverse folks, as well as the entire LGBTQ community. Right. So we've we've got these protections in place. We've been doing a lot of work with our health care providers to help inform them around these best practices and help empower them to provide this mes- medically necessary care to our community. We've been doing sort of a lot of work uh, in terms of the foundational pieces uh, for employment protections and things like that. So a lot of it is that sort of that feet on the ground, boots on the ground work. That our mm-hmm. organizations, organizations like us, One Colorado, the Transgender Center of the Rockies, um, Out Boulder County, like all of these organizations have been doing, to ensure that Colorado is a welcoming and affirming state.
0: A, a Gallup poll, uh, sorry, a Gallup study rather recently released says the percentage of adults in the U.S. who identify as LGBTQ has doubled over the past 10 years, particularly with younger Americans. The poll found 21% of those born between 1997 and 2003 identify as LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. How are your organizations adapting to more people, voicing and living their truth? What are you all doing?
1: Right, so part of it is we have organizations within the Central Alcohol Packs, right? We have our Rainbow Alley Program, which serves our youth community ages 11 to 21. Uh, We have a new Vice President of Programs, and we're going to be looking at developing programs for that uh, sort of that 21 to 30 age range that sometimes like kind of gets overlooked. We really want to stretch out our programs even all the way up through age 50, and then we've got our Mm Save to the Rocky Mountains supporting uh, our LGBTQ elders, and so all of these programs are there to like embrace our community build a sense of community in our space and uplift one another.
0: Sable, I uh, really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for being here. Thank you you for having me. This was great. Sable Schultz is the manager of transgender programming at the Center on Colfax, an LGBTQ community center in Denver. When we come back, working to achieve equity in Colorado's colleges and universities. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
3: A Catholic nun in Colorado Springs wanted to help victims of sex trafficking to recover from the trauma. Now she's opened a non-denominational home where survivors decide what resources they most need for their healing. Up to this point, they've been
4: controlled by somebody else, so they'll need to learn what their needs are. No one's ever asked them before. Read about this place of rescue and recovery from sex
3: trafficking at CPR.org.
0: Equity gaps have persisted in Colorado's universities for as long as they've existed. And while things have improved, many students are still left behind. To address those issues, the state's Department of Higher Education has hired a chief educational equity officer, Colorado's first, Dr. Roberto Montoya. Roberto, thanks for being here.
2: Nathan, thank you for having me. It's a gift to
0: be here. You were born in New Mexico, attending majority POC schools, but when you moved here to attend Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, I heard you experienced some culture shock. Can you tell us a bit about growing up in New Mexico and and some of what you experienced when you moved
2: here? Absolutely. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah, I, I was forged in the barrios of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and as you said, went to schools that were majority Hispanic, Chicano, Mexican and indigenous which were all distinct identities growing up in New Mexico and when I was looking at universities I knew I wanted to get away from home and I happened to end up at what was then called Mesa State which is now called Colorado Mesa University on a diversity recruitment weekend and decided that that was a place for me because it was a smaller institution I knew that's what I wanted and as I have mentioned I when all the students showed up in the dorms I had you know Culture shock is not enough because I had Mm. never been in in that type of white space at a primarily white institution. And it was so necessary for me because it was it prepared me for much of the rest of my career, which would be navigating spaces where I am one of the few folks um, that look like me, that have my background, that, that, you know, share my ethnicity and race. And I met such amazing white allies in that space who continue to be friends and and continue to help me uh, see the world in different ways.
0: The state says your new job is meant to erase quote, persistent equity gaps in educational attainment across the state's public universities and colleges. What does that mean to you? What does equity in higher education look like and how does
2: your position play into that? Absolutely, you know, for us, we define equity and, and our work as striving to intentionally remove structural barriers, providing all students with the specific supports they need to succeed. And so for us, we work tirelessly. Um, just and, and our office, the Office of Educational Equity, serves as a conduit and an amplifier of the best practices because there is great work that is happening at the institutions. Um, but how do we begin to amplify that and get that out to the other institutions? And how do we work together um, to look and to promote the public value of higher education and, and really encourage the general public to direct funding in a way that mirrors the diversity in our, in our state. And as you said, like we need to work tirelessly to erase those, those racial, ethnic, income, and geographical gaps that exist in Colorado. And I say this a lot, uh, Nathan, we cannot wish in equity. We have to work it in and we have to resource it in, and that's going to require us to, to take a differentiated approach. It's going to require us to do targeted policies, practices, and procedures that, that really focus on those who are most disproportionately impacted and are experiencing the most barriers. What Well, what are, those, what are some of those structural barriers? What do they look like? Yeah, so... Um, we know that there are multiple barriers. So some of our work in the Office of Educational Equity is we are focusing what we're calling the so- social determinants of student success. Um, and, and when you're talking about student success, conversely, you need to talk about what are some of the barriers that are limiting success. And Dr. Angie Pachoni, who's our executive director, worked and talked with a lot of the college presidents and CEOs. And, you know, some of the biggest barriers that we're seeing are around mental health and food insecurity. And so we worked with numerous stakeholders to create checklists to help institutions provide wraparound supports. And we give designations regarding a healthy minds campus and a hunger free campus. But we're also working with with policy fellows in the office to look at some of the other barriers, including transportation, housing, caretaking, belonging. These are all areas that students are experiencing and could be experiencing barriers and could be experienced multiple of those barriers. So we're working with institutions to provide those wraparound supports in those areas so students yeah. can flourish and succeed. So, so really, it's not just the
0: books and the studying, it's also getting to class, things like that, right? What Absolutely. have you seen? What have you seen Colorado universities getting right about equity, speaking of what you were just talking about?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, one of the things that we're getting right is we're talking about it. Um, we have to normalize conversations and approaches that use an equity lens. And equity is both process and product. It's a way that we measure our work, but it's also a way that we do the work. How do we begin to to use equity as a way of looking at our policies? Are there barriers in terms of the ways that we we look at even admissions, right? We You know, last year we we looked at, you know, test optional. You know, is that a barrier for students in terms of getting into institutions? And so we're continuing to look at what we can do to to, to ensure that students can and have access to. And as you mentioned earlier, that don't continue to exacerbate the inequities that we have seen and that have persisted for far too long.
0: You got your bachelor's, master's and doctorate here in Colorado, and I understand your daughter is a junior at CU Boulder. What are some things you experienced firsthand while in school here that might guide you in your new role?
2: Oh, uh, yeah, I'm proud to say that all of my degrees are in the state of Colorado. Um, I I say this a lot. I was not the most exceptional student in the classrooms that um, I was in and even growing up, but I had exceptional equity support in terms of wonderful advisement, um, great femtor and mentorship from my professors and from administrators. And, you know, so much. And, and I also saw the, the 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 inverse of that. I saw students who were not getting support, students who did not see um, themselves, including myself. Much of, I, I didn't have my first um, professor or teacher who looked like me, shared my gender and ethnicity till the second year of my PhD program, Dr. Manuel Espinosa. So I went an entire mm. academic career not seeing someone who looked like me. And the impact that that could have on your your academic identity, on the way that you're, you're seen as um, bright and successful. So my experiences continue to inform the way that, that, that I come to the work and, you know, that I'm the embodiment of what we're trying to do. Um, I'm not exceptional, but I am an exception. There are not many folks like me who look like me um, who have the letters behind their name and who are doing this type of work.
0: Right. Well, I find it so interesting. You say that I am a person of color, a Latino, and I did go to majority white school, and I felt the need to continually advocate for myself because the resources were not there. And do you see that changing in in universities, not just in Colorado, but across the country?
2: Um, Yeah, I I see that there is a desire and a leaning in um, to doing that. Um, What we need to do is to make sure that we are supporting institutions with the, the infrastructure, technical support, and resources that they need to do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, often, we, we, we generally say equity cannot be an unfunded mandate. It has to be something that we support. And, you know, the state is really leaning into that work through, you know, House Bill 1330, which is really looking and, and erasing equity gaps is one of the recommendations that came out of the Student Success and Workforce Revital, Revitalization um, Report. And so, I'm, I'm encouraged, I'm excited that we are focusing on that. And, you know, this office was created to do this work.
0: Yeah. Beyond the big state schools, there are several smaller universities that already serve disadvantaged students here in Colorado. Fort Lewis College in Durango comes to mind. What do you think the bigger institutions can learn from these colleges?
2: Well, I think they can learn how to be responsive and, um, and not prescriptive. That these smaller colleges are more nimble. They are they are you know, really thinking through ways to, to be able to, to serve students um, very specifically. And, and, and I think that it's not to say that the larger institutions are not doing that, but they're large. So they, you know, they're, they're, they're much bigger trying do and trying to It's a large ship to move. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so how do we become more speedboat um, in addition to Titanic in terms of doing our equity work? And we can do it from multiple approaches. There are, there is large systemic work that we need to do, but there's also very targeted individual work that we need to do in the Fort Lewis's, you know, the Colorado Mesas, uh, the Colorado mountain colleges are really doing great innovative work around how to serve, a, a majority of their students. Um, How so? And, can, can you give an example? Yeah. yeah so I mean, let, let's take Fort Lewis College you mentioned, right? Um, which is really doing wonderful work in terms of serving Indigenous students in their area, um, and, and doing it in a way so that 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 students not only um, know that they're being targeted and, and and look to being supported, but you know, creating positions around you know hiring professors. Um, so they see themselves in the curriculum. They see themselves in the professoriate. That's really important. And mm. that's work that we all need to be doing, that all the institutions need to be focusing on.
0: You mentioned uh, Colorado Mountain College. That's in my backyard here outside Glenwood Springs and Rifle. It is a community college that's often forgotten about in the discussion of higher education. It's designated Hispanic-serving institution. How will you utilize the state's community
2: college system to improve educational equity? It, it is an in valuable, variable in our equity work, that we have to be in symbiosis with the community college system because all of us are working together um, to best serve students. And so we can look to the community college system, to Chancellor Garcia, um, my dear colleague, um, Dr. Ryan Ross, who chairs the Equity Champion Coalition, um, which is a cadre of administrators and, and, and different folks who are working on equity to see what they're doing at community colleges to, to ensure that we are best serving students. And, and you know, as you mentioned, Colorado Mountain College is a Hispanic-serving institution. Mm-hmm. They have the Healthy Minds designation and hunger-free designation at all of their campuses, you know, and they've, they've implemented, implemented a five-year mental health and wellness strategic plan. So they're really doing leading work, and we're going to support them in the best ways that we can, also to lift up those best practices to get them out to all the institutions.
0: Uh, We've talked about all of the things you feel make campuses equitable, but what authority does your office and position have to make necessary changes on campus? That is to say, can you change
2: curriculum or implement equity practices on campuses? We we cannot. Uh, We serve in an advisory capacity. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, we do see ourselves as in in symbiosis with the institutions. And so uh, while we cannot dictate what they do, we can help them. Uh, with the best practices, with research, with what is working across the nation to support their efforts. And so part of what we do, and that's when I mentioned the Equity Champions Coalition, is these are folks from all the institutions, public and private, coming together to work together to come up with the best policies, practices, and procedures to serve our students and our learners. Have you met any resistance? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I I generally say when you are doing deep and meaningful equity work, you meet the most fantastic resistance. Uh, And and sometimes we need to be very cautious of of not labeling too quickly, labeling folks as resistance when they're just curious and trying to make sense of the work. Um, But sometimes the resistance helps us ask better questions in in terms of approaching the work in better ways. Um, While we try not to center resistance, uh, we do take, you know, those types of questions in and we try, we need as much help as we can possibly get in this work. And sometimes some of the help is in those folks who are like, I I just don't understand what this work is trying to do and how we're doing it. Are you, are you changing their minds? Um, You know, I hope so. I think I try to, you know, through my own experience, animate what it, what this equity work means, um, that when we're doing this, that it is not zero sum that we are all benefiting, that, that Colorado, our economy, everything is benefiting by us serving those who are most disproportionately impacted and, and unable to really persist, that this benefits us all. And sometimes that takes effort. Um, and I'm committed to that. I am in the business of calling people into this work.
0: Final question. For many people, not just people of color, cost is a major hurdle in attending university. We mentioned this a little bit earlier. Colorado's legislature funds its colleges at a much lesser rate than its peers, and that leads to steeper tuition and fees. And we're not even talking about the high cost of living here. How can Colorado not only attract but retain marginalized students if prices across
2: the board are just really high? Yeah, they they are. And, and we know that. And we're constantly working um regarding affordability and, and total cost of, of attendance. Um, with that said, also, I think that, you know, for for most students, especially, and we're working now, like most students who, let's say families who make under $60,000 a year, the cost of attendance is, is pretty minimal. But what we need mm. to do is how do we continue to educate folks so that they know that? But we're in a deep competition with states all across the nation who are looking Um, to our bright and amazing students and learners, and trying to entice them to leave the state. So we're working um, tirelessly um, through so many of our efforts to ensure that students know and are aware of what the cost of of attendance is, depending on where you're at, and how we continue to look at making sure that that post-secondary education is affordable. So we know that, and we're constantly working at it.
0: Roberto, thanks for joining us. Nathan,
2: thank you so much for having me. This has
0: been an honor. Dr. Roberto Montoya is the new Chief Educational Equity Officer for the Colorado Department of Higher Education. Still to come, the Colorado Environmental Film Festival is underway, and one documentary has its eye on fracking in the North Fork Valley. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver has an air pollution problem, and the world has a climate change problem. All those fancy new RTD trains should help fix that, right?
3: If we really want to see a better city, a better world, we have to change.
0: I'm Nathaniel Minor, host of CPR's new podcast, Ghost Train. In this show, I take a deep look at how transit could fix big issues our cities are facing, if we let it. Follow Ghost Train wherever you get your podcasts. Since the decline of coal in western Colorado, towns in the North Fork Valley are transitioning their economies away from extraction. The area is a hub for organic agriculture, and tourists spend their dollars on locally grown food and wine. But some ranchers and farmers are worried new oil and gas development could threaten their way of life. Joining me today is Chad Rich. He's a filmmaker and educator based in Crested Butte. His documentary, A Monolithic Folly, details their concerns. Hey, Chad. Hey, Nathan. Good morning. Your documentary is featured in the Colorado Environmental Film Festival, which is virtual this year. It ends on Sunday. So what is making folks worried about oil and gas development in this part of Colorado?
3: I think what's making folks worried about oil and gas development in the North Fork is the sheer amount that could possibly come to the region. Right now, there is a small amount of um oil and gas development, as there is in uh, many areas with, with shale. It's the Mancos shale here. Um, just to the north, we have Garfield County, which is uh, um, heavily developed around Rifle, um, DeBeck, Battlement Mesa, and communities mm-hmm. like that. But in the North Fork, there's a relatively small amount of development. And the fear is that under a plan by the Trump administration, what was a few dozen wells could quickly turn into maybe over a thousand
0: wells. So they're going from a small amount to a, to a large amount, it seems. Yeah, correct. You were news director at KBUT in Crested Butte and have reported on oil and gas stories in the area over time. Why did you want to create a film about the concerns of North Fork Valley locals?
3: Well, the North Fork, you know, to, to me personally and to a lot of people in my community is a pretty special place. We live at about 9000 feet. Relatively a food desert, so to say, meaning it's really difficult to grow anything besides kale unless you're a really handy gardener in the area. (laughs) Um, And during the summer, you know, we enjoy eating fresh fruits and produce and vegetables as well as, um, you know, meats that come from the North Fork Valley. There are a lot of folks from our farmers markets and our health food stores uh, are supplied by the North Fork Valley. Um, The peaches are some of the best in the state, if not the world. Um, and, you know, so it's 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 special for us in that it supplies a lot of our, our our specialty foods throughout the summer. It's also just a great place to visit. It's a vast landscape. The North Fork, the upper reaches of the North Fork as you go um, to the north from the highway coming out of uh, Paonia is just I don't want to say it's an untouched landscape because, like I said, there's a small amount of fracking and there's some private property up there and some lodges and stuff like that. Um, But it's just a vast landscape and it feels very, very wild. Um, On a hike, you're likely to see a variety of animals, if it's not elk and deer, variety of birds. Um, It's quiet, you know. And if fracking moves in, also that moves in are the trucks and the traffic and the dust and the rigs and the drilling. And it would just alter the entire landscape in the entire feel of what it's like to be in the upper north
0: fork can you tell us what happened in 2020 what changed when it came comes to oil and gas leases under the trump administration in other words it was a bit of a change then
3: yeah so what happened was and and the the timing of all of these events is uh is suspect, so to say. Um, But first, Hmm. you know, the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, moved its headquarters from Washington, D.C., to Grand Junction. Um, That's where William uh, Penley ended up as the director of the BLM. And under the Trump administration, they approved up to, what, 1,100 new wells could be drilled Um, But first, that requires an auction to happen and that requires a lease auction to happen. And luckily, that never went through. But in 2020, to get back to your question, in 2020, the Trump administration basically ramrodded against all local concern and all local input, ramrodded this plan to open 95% of public lands that had not previously been opened, because like I said, there is some fracking and there are some leases that have not been developed as well. Um, But the Trump administration opened 95 percent of the remaining public land uh, to oil and gas. And that just seemed completely imbalanced, especially when it came to community concern and a lot of local input saying, don't do this.
0: You spoke with farmers and ranchers who are specifically worried about the impacts on their water supply. Hydraulic fracturing uses a combination of water and chemicals to drill new oil and gas wells. Uh, I want to play a clip from Corey Stanton, who grows organic lavender in the valley
3: if you're trying to grow an organic crop and then it's essentially poisoned by fracking fluid whatever else could be seeped into this water that ends up you know in our irrigation we can't have that we can't have anything other than you know pure water and maybe some cow poop (laughs) that ends up in the irrigation in our plants
0: Research has found that, indeed, hydraulic fracturing can impact water resources under certain circumstances. How valid do you think the people in your documentary, how how valid are their concerns?
3: Well, I think their concerns are very valid. If you've ever been to the North Fork, it is a very arid region. You're kind of coming off of the mountains. Um, It's dry. There's not a lot of water to go around to start with. And like you mentioned, hydraulic fracturing or fracking takes a lot of water. So where's the water going to come from when you're already dealing with a landscape and an economy that relies on this water? What if that goes away? And if that starts to shrink to an even smaller supply than is already available, what kind of impacts is that going to have on the farmers and ranchers in the area? I don't imagine that it's going to be
0: good. Your documentary does not include interviews or a statement from the oil and gas industry. Why is that? Okay, here's an interesting thing, Nathan, um,
3: and, I've, and I've had to justify this and, and speak with several people about this. Um, mm-hmm. There's a difference between documentary and journalism. And I worked as a journalist, and I still do um, as a freelancer, um, but documentary and journalism kind of rely on two different sets of ethics. Documentary is thought of being the creative treatment of actuality, or the creative treatment of reality. Um, Whereas journalism strives to give a fair and balanced view of kind of both sides. As I'm producing this documentary, I realize I'm up against a time crunch, because I'm originally producing this for Rocky Mountain PBS, where it aired in January and February. Rocky Mountain PBS has a very strict timeline, 26 minutes and 40 seconds. Um, So I'm already up against the, the, the strict timeline. And a second note is that I chose to take the angle of telling the story of the potentially impacted citizens. And that's all I wanted to hear was from the people who had the most to lose. I chose not to include the oil and gas industry in it because... Throughout the years, interviewing folks from the industry, you tend to hear the same kind of rebuke, that this is good for the economy, this is good for jobs, it'll be good for the communities. And I think we've all heard that story over and over, but what we don't hear a lot of times and we don't see specifically, because this is documentary and it's film, is we don't see the impacted people. So I chose to just focus on those who had most to
0: lose. With that said, we're wrapping up here, but Ubi McGuire, I want to play this clip. She's a shepherdess, and she raises sheep in the valley. Speaking of of people there, uh, let's hear what she has to say.
1: When we first moved here in 73, we could get irrigation water all the way down to here. It would catch in the catch ditch. It would go on to the next farm. They could use it and so on. That hasn't happened for several years.
0: So it's not just oil and gas. It's water. It's the climate. Um, How did you bring out their stories? Well, you know, it's interesting because my, my documentary started
3: as a project in graduate school. So I was up against another timeline there. Um, and um, I basically met with a community leader. Her name is Natasha. She's with a group called Citizens for Healthy Communities. And she was able to introduce me to a variety of other community members like Uji, Corey, Rich Rudin, who is a famous ditch rider in the area. Um, and through just spending time in the North Fork and spending time with people, I was able to hear their stories, and eventually they let me turn on the cameras.
0: Got it. Uji, I apologize. I apologize for that. Uh, Have oil and gas companies jumped on any of these newly opened lease opportunities that, that you've been speaking about? Well,
3: if you recall, when Joe Biden was elected, he immediately put a moratorium on new oil and gas leases. So the Trump administration opened up the leases, but the leases have to go through a sale process, and these leases never made it to the sale process. So they were never made available to the companies. So essentially, they're still sitting in purgatory.
0: Final question. Wouldn't more oil and gas jobs be a good thing bringing economy to to people there? You know, in theory,
3: Nathan, yes. But here's what I've heard from people in the North Fork, as well as people in other um, oil and gas areas like Southwest Pennsylvania, is that. When coal was in its heyday, you know, people would wake up in the morning, brush their teeth, eat breakfast and go to work in the coal mines and come home with oil and gas. It tends to be a company comes in, um, does the frack, you know, plugs it into the pipeline and moves on and does the next frack. I was interviewing one member, Ben Katz, and this didn't make the film and I'm sad it didn't make the film, but we're at Hmm. an oil and gas site that's actively producing oil and gas. And he asks me, do you see anyone here working and he had a great point. You know, if it's a coal mine, people are in there and people are running the machines and doing the work. But when it comes to oil and gas, once the, uh, once the frack has been made, they
0: move on. Chad, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Chad Rich is a filmmaker and educator based in Crested Butte. His documentary, A Monolithic Folly, features residents of the North Fork Valley who are concerned about the impacts of new oil and gas development in the area. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
4: Librarians, bus drivers, nurses. Across the state, there are workers interested in organizing. Workers who want to bargain with their employers. Workers who aren't allowed to do that.
0: Leadership has chosen to not recognize our union for the last two years, so this would be something where they
4: couldn't do that anymore. They would have to work with us. A push to expand organizing powers for local public workers is pitting powerful forces against each other. You can hear all about it in our politics podcast, Purplish, now in the CPR app and everywhere you get your podcasts.
0: The Marshall Fire ignited two months ago and swept through parts of Boulder County. It killed at least one person and destroyed more than 1,000 homes. Coming to terms with what happened is a journey. For CPR climate team reporter Miguel Otavula, he's found solace in music. He points out it can have a duality, where grief and comfort are sides of the same coin. He shared his reflections recently
4: with MTR Music, and we asked him to read his essay. A few years ago, during what would be my last of four frigid Minneapolis winters, I noticed a ritual had embedded itself into my evening commute. I was reporting for a local newspaper at the time, my first job out of college, in a city where people take pride in their ability to withstand the elements. Each time, the same sequence unfolded from muscle memory. Wait to board the bus, find a seat by the window, pull my headphones on over my beanie, choose a soundtrack. On nights when I felt particularly introverted, the honor went to songs by the British electronic producer, Burial. I would burrow inside the worlds he created, comforted by the vinyl crackle that runs like a current under his music as the blurry streetlights outside dotted my own reflection. Listening turned my mere loneliness into solitude, making the long winter nights and the sadness that came with them make sense. Since his earliest releases, Burial has made music for secret, hidden moments like these, informed by the fog and rain of his own South London. Though his palette, an array of distorted vocals, broken beats, and falling shell casings, hasn't changed much over the years, the worlds he paints with it have. After 2013's rival dealer, he ventured away from the dance floor, writing starker pieces about smoldering beach fires and a forgotten state forest. There were no drums, only echoes. These landscapes were dimmer and even further removed from society. And in time, it became harder to see myself in them, harder to relate. That all changed in December, I was finishing my first year as a climate and environment reporter in Colorado. We had reached the end of the year without a major wildfire, unlike in 2020, when the three largest fires in state history burned hundreds of thousands of acres of forest land. We were still in extreme drought. Denver went a disturbing 232 days without a significant snowfall, but it seemed like we had avoided the worst for now. On December 30th, 2021, two days before the new year, a grass fire ignited about 26 miles northwest of Denver. Winds gusting at more than 100 miles an hour fanned the flames toward the suburban communities of Superior and Louisville, torching neighborhoods and clouding the skies with thick gray smoke. The fire kept spreading throughout the night until the winds died down and snow fell over the smoldering towns. The Marshall Fire would become the most destructive in Colorado history, with more than a thousand homes burned to the ground and at least one confirmed death. I was out of the state when the fire happened. Back at work the following week, I drove up to the burn scar to see it for myself. Pulling off the highway and into residential neighborhoods, I saw cars stripped to their frames, buildings brought to the ground. I spoke with a pair of sisters next to the remains of their two-story childhood home, now leveled. Across the street, a man stood on top of the rubble piled in the middle of his property. That's where the front door used to be, he told me, pointing at a blank space on the ground. There were people and memories connected to these places and objects, but all I knew were the ruins. Back in Denver, I filed my interviews and wrote my stories. Later that week, unable to sleep and staring at my phone, I saw that Burial had released his latest EP, Antidon. Just the vapors, read the online promotional blurb. I put it on and fell back to bed. At 43 minutes, Antidon is Burial's longest project since his 2007 breakthrough, Untrue. Its five long tracks seem to exist in spaces where light does not. The edges of the solar system, the depths of a cavern, the bottom of the ocean. Mournful organs and synths fill the open space. Sampled vocals drift in and out of frame, stretched out and frayed, haunting whatever happens to pass in their direction. Nowhere to go croaks a voice in the opening track, Strange Neighborhood. Nowhere to go. I'm in a bad place, moans another, distorted and despondent. A thin voice sings for somewhere in the darkest night, cosmic sense swelling underneath. Curled up in bed, I couldn't help but think of what I hadn't seen on my trip. I thought of children riding bicycles down those streets, a patio table where friends gathered in the summer, the pages of a book and the person engrossed in it. Burial had used these ghostly shapes of memories to build a cold, desolate world. But inside my head, they did the opposite, helping recreate what the neighborhoods left behind by the Marshall Fire might have once looked like. As a reporter covering climate change, I always felt swallowed by these calamities. There are always new fires, new record temperatures, new reports warning us of what lies ahead. Looking at the Marshall Fire burn scar with my own eyes, I couldn't even comprehend the destruction in front of me. I kept wishing that it had never happened, that the winds weren't as strong that day, that there was some snow on the ground to keep the flames from spreading. I struggled with the idea that only a few miles away, my apartment and neighborhood were standing like they were the day before. And yet, the music was a relief. If Burial's discography had often felt to me like a foreboding signal from the near future, I could see in Antidon that the future was already here. This is the reality we live in, it assured me. The consequences of climate change are playing out right in front of us. In that moment, I was at peace with whatever lurked in the darkness. The threat persisted, but in terms I could grasp, in the ruined remnants I could perceive with my own senses. Feeling grounded, I was ready to move forward. To me, burial is music made for these ruins, and the people left to see them. His vocal samples remind you that someone is there, or was there, or is lighting the way just a little further ahead. His drums, though rarer in his music now, still pulse you forward. The crackle and hiss still keep you warm. It may not be the same world that once existed, but it's still our world, one where it's not too late to learn from what we're seeing. A voice in Come Down to Us, the melodramatic centerpiece of Rival Dealer offers a bridge between what was and what is. Don't
3: be afraid to step into the unknown.
4: Don't be afraid to step into the unknown. If you alone could hear someone upset on the other side of the world, then maybe then you could do something about it, Burial told journalist Mark Fisher in 2007 around the release of Untrue. I was once in these mountains, You see these fires. Other people sleeping out in the mountains. Traders across the border. And that gives you this feeling. Nighttime. Awareness of other people sleeping. But all it is, just firelight. You see their firelight, and you know they are there. That's all you need. As I finished my tour of the burn scar, snow began to fall, obscuring my vision and blanketing the ground in white, Driving back toward the highway, I felt some of that same quiet, secret solitude I felt riding the bus on those dark winter nights in Minneapolis. The cars on the road move slowly, carefully, headlights cutting through the snow, guiding us all home. The snow is falling outside my window now as I write and listen. But beyond it, the firelights burn, letting me know we're still here.
0: Miguel Otarola is a climate and environment reporter with CPR. We'll link to his complete essay in the Colorado Matters podcast. And that's our show for today. Special thanks to Miguel, Paolo Cholzeta, and Michael Elizabeth Sackis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.